0: Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.
1: We are currently in a sermon series titled Making Space for Christ, which is trying to help us make room in our lives for the birth and ultimately for the life of Jesus. Now, when we say things such as making space for Christ— or room in our hearts for Jesus, to be clear, we're not talking about a mushy, undefinable, spiritualized relationship with Jesus. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, For example, my Grammy, who was my mom's mom, Grammy was deeply in love with my grandpa, Grandpa John. But unfortunately, my grandpa John had the spiritual gift of sawing logs. I mean, his snoring was so loud, it did not matter where you were in the house, maybe even outside of the house, and you could hear him snore. And so they slept in different rooms. Grandpa John slept in the master bedroom. Grammy often slept in what was called uh, the craft room. It was a small room with various, various shades of light pink. Uh, various kinds of cloth were usually strewn around the room, just waiting to be stitched together by her. And there was a small twin bed upon which she slept, and beside her pillow was a bedstand, uh, a bedstand upon which stood a small framed picture of Jesus. Jesus, with light brown hair, blue eyes, delicate red lips. You've probably seen the picture. And as much as my Grammy loved my Grandpa John, uh, she deeply loved Jesus. She deeply loved Jesus. She had a relationship with Jesus. And it was mystical and it was beautiful. Beautiful. But it was also amorphous, like, like it couldn't be explained. Life in Christ for my Grammy was an undefin- undefinable connection to a divine lover. And I think you, you probably know what I'm getting at here. I tell you this because when we use language like making space for Christ or making room in our lives for the birth and ultimately for the life of Jesus, we can sometimes fall into amorphous, unexplainable meanings of relationship with God. But that's not what the sermon series is about. This Advent series, which concludes today, is about concrete practices that intend to open up ourselves to life in Christ. In Christ. Those two words are used a whole bunch throughout the New Testament. And it often becomes about being in or being out. Being in Christ or being outside of Christ. Being saved or not being saved. But it's really not about that. Rather, to be in Christ, to live life in Christ, is to embody the values and teachings of Jesus. To be in Christ is to walk out our lives in the ways of Christ, who, in our Christian tradition, is understood to be the very face of God, life, capital L, life itself. And so, when we talk about making space for Christ through rest and prayer and fasting and forgiveness, we're not casting vision for somehow improving our love relationship with Jesus up there in the heavens somewhere. Instead, we're talking about practices that encourage life in Christ, which is to say life in God, who is life itself. With this in mind, rest isn't a means toward God Rest is life in God. Similarly, prayer isn't a means toward God, it's life in God. And the same is true this morning as we consider forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a means toward God. Life in forgiveness is very literally life lived out in Christ. Because God, ultimate reality, the ground of our being, life itself, as we see throughout the scriptures, is forgiveness, is forgiveness. Now, we're going to take some time here to get into forgiveness, but I think just beginning with the notion that God, ultimate reality, life itself is forgiveness, this is a salient idea for us to ponder, right? Like, like of course, we don't need to forgive. No one has to forgive. Forgiveness is our prerogative, And whether or not we practice forgiveness, we all abide in God because without God we do not move or breathe or have our being. But to abide in a place of unforgiveness, unforgiveness for ourselves or unforgiveness for others, like like that part of our soul, that part of our brain, that part inside of us that holds the wrong that we've done, you know, just holds that wrong or holds on to the wrongs that have been done to us by others, right? We, we know where we hold that. Sometimes we can actually physically feel the places in our body that we hold that unforgiveness. Well, that is something less than the fullness and wholeness that comes with life in Christ, in God, who, according to the Scriptures, is the realm and reality of forgiveness. And so to begin, forgiveness is to live more fully and more wholly in God who is life. Which is to say, to forgive is to live more fully. And When we struggle to forgive ourselves or others, when we wrestle with it, when we find ourselves incapable of it, there's something more of life to be had and we're experiencing something less than the fullness of life. With this in mind, I'd like to briefly unpack three passages on forgiveness. We heard the first passage this morning in the first reading from Genesis chapter 50. The second was from this morning's second reading, Matthew chapter 6. And then the third passage that I'll touch on is located in Matthew chapter 18. Leading up to Genesis chapter 50, Jacob has 12 sons. One of his 12 sons is named Joseph, and Jacob has a very special love for his son Joseph, which, due to an assortment of circumstances, fills his brothers with jealousy, envy, and ultimately a whole bunch of rage. And so the brothers sell Joseph to some merchants who then take him to Egypt. They then lie to their father, telling him that their brother had been killed by a wild animal. Taken to Egypt, Joseph becomes a slave. Over time, he advances to become an official's slave and then is falsely accused that he had an affair with the wife of the official, and so Joseph gets thrown into prison. Over more time and through miraculous circumstances, Joseph rises to the second in command in Egypt. And this is where the story gets really, really good. There's a famine in the land of his father and brothers. And so the majority of his brothers arrive in Egypt. They stand before their brother Joseph. They don't recognize him because he's older and they actually think he's probably dead. And so they stand before their unrecognizable brother. They fall down before him and they beg for him to give them food so that they can take it back to their homeland and provide for their families. Joseph gives them some food along with some trickery. Over more time, Jacob, the father, dies. But before dying, Joseph's brothers say to their dad, hey, if Joseph is still holding a grudge against us, after you die, we have no shot, like no chance. We're not gonna go back to Egypt and get food. We are in big trouble. We pick up in the middle of Genesis chapter 50 with these words. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you were to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Joseph and his brothers then embrace, and Joseph declares to them, Do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. Joseph wept. And these were clearly tears of forgiveness because he declares to them, Do not be afraid. I will provide. Joseph's response is remarkable when you take into context his story, right? Beaten, sold, enslaved, and imprisoned. And to top off the injustice of it all, years and years of missing out on life and memories with his family, all because of his wicked brothers. And yet, in this story, Joseph weeps tears of forgiveness. Of course, he didn't need to forgive. I mean, for many people, forgiveness can be perceived as weakness, like it's weak to forgive. Plus, it's often thought to be easier to leverage our anger at those who have hurt us than it is to forgive, right? Like, hostility can be a powerful catalyst in our lives. And besides, in competitive societies like ours, it makes sense to not forgive because in doing so, it often feels like we're relinquishing an upper hand in the relationship, Because there's a dynamic when somebody wrongs us that can give us power if we hold on to what they've done against us. And so Joseph could have justly carried his pain and anger to the grave. And so can we. We can carry all of our pain and all of our anger with us through our lives all the way to the grave. I mean it. Some of the things that you have faced, the things that have been faced in this room over the course of our lives, the abuse, the violence, the manipulation, and lies, and pain, and agony, are probably, very most likely, beyond human comprehension. In fact, I'm certain that if we were to share all of the things that have hurt us, that have caused us pain, that have made us lose sleep, and made us cry at night when no one is watching, I'm, I'm sure we could, we could pile them up into this room and they would stretch up into the heavens. And that is no small thing. Horrible things have occurred in our lives, and we can justly carry it all to the grave. And so with this in mind, I want to try and be real clear about a few things in relation to forgiveness. First, forgiveness isn't to say that a person or people shouldn't have consequences or that justice isn't necessary. Forgiveness and justice are siblings, but they're not identical twins. Second, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that we forget uh, what transpired or that we must pardon the offender. Forgiveness is not the same thing as forgetfulness. Third, forgiveness doesn't mean that you must reconcile relationship with another person. It doesn't mean that. Of course, that may be an outflow of forgiveness, but it's not the same thing as forgiveness. In fact, it may be wise for you to ensure no contact with certain people for the rest of your life in order to ensure your own safety. And fourth, when considering forgiveness, it may be helpful to remember that it isn't really about the person or people who have hurt you. I'd like to say that again. Forgiveness isn't really about the person or people who have hurt you. Forgiveness is about you. Forgiveness is about your life. Forgiveness is about our common flourishing despite the wrongs that have been done to us that we have endured as humans in this world. In a study by psychologist Charlie Whitvilliet, people were asked to think about someone who had hurt, mistreated, or offended them. While they pondered this, she monitored their blood pressure, heart rate, facial muscle tension, and sweat gland activity. According to the study, when people recall the past offense, their physical arousal soared. Their blood pressure and heart rate increased, and they sweated more. The study found that when ruminating on past wrongs, that experience was considered stressful and unpleasant. It caused them to consistently feel angry, sad, anxious, and less in control of their lives. In contrast, the study then asked the participants to empathize with or to imagine forgiving those who wronged them. The results of practiced forgiveness made physical arousal diminish. And the participants showed not much more stress than normal wakefulness often produces. Isn't that interesting? So, you see, forgiveness isn't just a spiritual thing or a Christian thing or a Jesus thing. It's very much a biological, physiological thing that impacts us deeply. The other day, I was pondering this study when I ended up in the car having a conversation with my son Miles, who was having trouble with his older sister, Phoebe. Whew, and he was just mad. I looked at him and said, You're pretty mad, aren't you? Oh, I'm mad. Phoebe's driving you crazy, isn't she? Oh, yeah. Tell me everything you don't like about Phoebe. Oh, and he just went on and on and on about everything that he didn't like about his sister. And I threw in a couple things, too, you know. So we just, whew, we just felt all of those things. Once we got all of that out, I said, now let's just take a little bit of time thinking about everything that we, that we love about her. And so he was struggling to get the whole thing going. So I threw out a couple things, and then he threw out a few things, and I tossed in a couple more things. And, and then I said, let's, let's think about, like, life for Phoebe right now, right? Like, things have been hard for your sister. I mean, like you, she's coming out of COVID, and she's transitioning to a new normal. She's gone from eighth grade to her freshman year. Some of her classes are really hard. How do you think she feels inside? Oh, and he's saying, like, things like tender maybe a little embarrassed, awkward. And I'll tell you what, in that moment, the energy in the car just changed. It was as if our space had gone from like, you know, like a nuclear bomb, just ready to go off, to this expansive benevolence. Just from talking, just from processing, just trying to contextualize and humanize another person. Now, a couple things about this story. First, I totally get that the harm that Miles felt was minor, especially depending on what has happened in your life and and maybe some of the things that you find yourself continuing to hold on to. But I do think that this conversation, this experience with Miles, is representative of what occurs inside of ourselves when we practice empathy that moves us toward a place of being able to relinquish, to forgive. And second, I want to remind us that forgiveness isn't about the person who hurt us. That being said, it's true that if we choose to remain in relationship with someone who has hurt us, that forgiveness improves the relationship. In a study by Frank Finchman and Julie Hall, they reviewed 17 empirical studies on forgiveness in relationships and found that a lack of forgiveness leads to competition rather than compromise and that the presence of forgiveness resulted in an increase of relational benevolence. And so, yes, I do think that that conversation with Miles is going to help his intimacy with his sister. But more than that, just think about Miles. Miles, right, improved as a human in that moment. He became less twisted up, less closed up, more open and present and benevolent. Forgiveness is for you. It's an intentional practice during which we attempt a compassionate gaze that increases forgiveness inside of ourselves. And that is proven to make us less stressed, less angry, less sad, less anxious. And ironically, think about this, because I think this is often why we struggle to forgive. Ironically, forgiveness allows us to be in more control of our own lives, more control of our own lives this morning's reading from the New Testament, we heard Jesus teaching on the Lord's Prayer. At the conclusion of the prayer, Jesus explains, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Raise your hand if you feel good about this. This does not feel good, does it? It's a troubling sentence by Jesus. It feels like quid pro quo, doesn't it? I'll do this for you, you do that for me. We forgive others, and then, thankfully, God is willing to forgive us. But what if there's a more helpful way to think about these strange words? Just earlier, I shared that forgiveness isn't a means toward God. Rather, forgiveness is very literally life in God. Because God, ultimate reality, the ground of our being, life itself is forgiveness. With this in mind, there is an inherent reciprocity between forgiveness and being forgiven. That's to say, rather than quid pro quo, tit for tat, I do this for you, you do that for me. Jesus seems to be saying that there's a relationship. There's there's an inherent relationship between forgiving and being forgiven. We could probably say it the other way around. There is an inherent relationship between being forgiven and forgiving. And that's because forgiveness, forgiving and being forgiven are all part of the same divine ecosystem. Jesus actually tells a parable about this very idea in Matthew chapter 18, which is often called the parable of the unmerciful servant. In the parable, a man owed a king millions and millions of dollars. The king came collecting. The man could not pay his debt. And so the king said, sell everything that the man has, even his family, just sell it all and use what we have to pay the debt. The man then begs for forgiveness and the king is said to have felt compassion, which resulted in releasing the man and forgiving him. The forgiven man then leaves the king's presence and get this, the first thing that he does The very first thing that the man does after being forgiven millions and millions of dollars is that he goes out and he finds, maybe even searches for, he goes out and looks for this man who owes him a few bucks. He finds him, grabs him by the neck, chokes him, and demands, pay back what you owe me. Now, it's easy to get lost in the parable. Right? We feel outrage at the absurdity. He can't do that, and we desire justice. Well, if that's how it's going to be, then he should have to pay back his debt in full. And suddenly, maybe even brilliantly, we're beginning to see how connected forgiving and being forgiven actually are. It's almost as though there can't be one without the other. Like to forgive sets us down in the divine realm of forgiveness, in which forgiving and being forgiven are necessary and normal. But once you lose one, either forgiving or being forgiven, and suddenly the landscape changes, and everybody's thinking about the absurdity and the justice that so often eclipse the expansive world of grace. A key question that this parable begs us to ask is how? How? How can a person who has been forgiven millions of dollars fail to forgive a few bucks? Answer, the man was not truly forgiven. I mean, that's the only possible answer. Answer. The only way a person forgiven millions of dollars can seek out, choke, and demand a few bucks from another person is that if that person is unable to comprehend, to abide within a reality in which that person is truly and fully forgiven. You see, the man must pursue a few bucks wherever he can because he continues to live in a reality in which he owes millions. He cannot receive forgiveness himself. And that torture, that debt, that weight carried around inside of himself, well, that is life outside of Christ. It's a life and a reality in which we all get what we deserve, and that ensures that we're all paying very careful attention. We're all paying attention to who is right and who is wrong, who is good and who is bad, who must pay and who must be paid. And in that world, in that way of seeing it all, forgiveness is always Always scarce. Not because forgiveness is unavailable, but because our perspective on life is lived outside of Christ, where grace and mercy and forgiveness are eclipsed by laws and debt, laws and debt, always, forever, more laws and debt. Which makes me want to ask: Which world are we living in? Because, and here's the good news: we get to choose. We really do. We humans have the joy and privilege and agency of choosing. Of course, life in the world of forgiveness is not easy, but it is good. As I've mentioned, studies show that it's a world full of benefits for lives that flourish. You see, to forgive is to flourish. To receive forgiveness is to flourish. A world, an ecosystem, a life, a community, a way of being within forgiveness is human flourishing and it's a practice that we're invited into moment by moment and day by day seven years ago we broadened our marriage practice here at pearl and this precious community was almost torn to pieces people that i dearly loved said things and did things that broke my heart and hurt me deeply and for years Being very honest, for years and years and years, maybe even six years, for years, I've lived in unforgiveness. I was like a fortress, you know? That's what often happens when you experience pain. One option is to become a fortress. I became a fortress that promised to keep me safe. Ah, but fortresses of this kind slowly transform into prison cells in which stress and anger and isolation flourish all the while humans slowly wither away. And so for the last year, at least, I've begun trying to intentionally practice forgiveness. When a person or a moment becomes alive in my head, you know what I'm talking about? You hear those words or you just see the person and it triggers just all of that embodied trauma. I feel myself begin to harden. What I'm trying to do now is I'm trying to see that person in my mind's eye. And then I just speak all of my rage right to them. Like I did with my son Miles, I just get it all out. It's interesting, you do that long enough, you do that for enough weeks or months or years, You start spending less time on all of the rage. It slowly starts to fade. Then I speak all of my questions, and once I get all of that anger and all of those questions out, I try and recall some of the good about those people. For those I knew well, I try to appreciate some of the circumstances that may have played into how they behaved. And at this point in my life, usually within a few minutes, I can begin to feel my heart unclench. I physiologically open. I find myself more capable of breathing deeply. And to be clear, it's a process, right? It's a process. At one point, I couldn't even hear a person's name without totally shutting down. But over time, time has a way with us, doesn't it? Over time, i found that I can see others and hold others and even release others. And you know what I'm finding in that release? It's me. <laughs> like, I'm being released. My life is being released. My soul is being unclenched. I am slowly being released to live freely and to flourish as a human in this world because forgiveness is setting me. It's setting me free. To be clear, I may never speak to some of those people again, but I believe with my whole heart that I'm heading in the way of Jesus, which is life itself. Beloved church, we come to this point, the fourth Sunday of Advent once a year. Once a year. Christmas is just days away, and we'll be invited to follow after Jesus anew. What better way to prepare ourselves for the year ahead than to intentionally give our hearts over to the work of forgiveness? Forgiveness that transforms our prisons of debt into streams of living water that nourish abundant life here and now. What a wonderful Christmas it can be. Will you pray with me? Spirit of divine love, I ask that you would heal us and free us day by day that we might live these brief and precious lives in all fullness and flourishing.
0: We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.